It is fascinating to see what Ethereum blockchain upgrades bring for its users. After the merge, along with adding network security, scalability, developers are also focused on better use cases for validators and staking pools. If you are one of those interested in learning more about Dancun featured EIPs, stay with us. Welcome to PPenip episode 117. I am Pooja Ranjan back with another special episode on Dancun Upgrade. Documented in February 2022, co-authored by Alex Stokes, Anska Dietrich, Danny Ryan, Martin Swente, and Lightline, EIP 4788 Beacon Root in EVM is a proposal to support a wide variety of use cases that improve trust assumptions of staking pool, restaking constructions, smart contract bridges, MEV mitigations, and more. To learn more about the proposal, let's welcome Alex Stokes. Welcome to Peep and Eep, Alex. Thanks, Pooja. Happy to be here. It's great to see you back. For those who aren't aware, Alex is a researcher at Ethereum Foundation, and he is also building MEV Boost community by organizing community calls. He has been generous enough to take out time and talk about Ethereum improvement proposals and other ongoing research work. In the past, he enlightened us with talks on MEV Boost, EIP 4895 beacon chain push withdrawals, EIP 44's bound historical data in execution clients, account reforming with Altair upgrade. So if you have missed any of these, check out PPenny playlist on eCatherdis YouTube. Moving on, today we are here to learn about EIP 4788. But before we go there, for our new subscribers, May I invite Alex to say a few words about himself and his journey in the Ethereum ecosystem? Yeah, I think Fuji was saying I'm a researcher at the EF, doing a number of things at this point. And so, yeah, looking into various topics. Historically, I had worked, you know, looking at proof of stake and the different consensus things that we've done leading up to the merge. And then now, you know, there's some things that we could still hope to improve around the staking model. One of them being the stuff we'll get look at with the CIP. And yeah, from there, it also kind of opens a whole box of different things we've introduced to Ethereum in the form of MEV, restaking and all this fun stuff. So I've also been looking into some of that lately. Thank you so much. I hope it inspires someone to join the ecosystem. Without further ado, let's peep in. Let's go ahead and dive in. So yeah, if you're watching this, you have probably heard of this. Ethereum has merged, anniversary is coming up soon. And uh, yeah, we moved from proof of work to proof of stake. And the way that we chose to do this was essentially with this dual layer architecture. So you can imagine there's like a consensus layer that is like figuring out sort of what has happened in the world of Ethereum. And that consensus layer somehow houses this execution layer. So the idea with the merge is that you had this proof of work chain that was like coming along and essentially it was the consensus kind of like hot swapped in place so that you have the execution layer where all of our applications live and then now there's a consensus layer that is forming consensus over again the protocol so a lot of that was reflecting sort of just you know the historical you know let's say progress of both of these different efforts and in order to merge them this was probably the simplest 
but they left some things to be desired. Some things around the like, staking protocol that we could think to improve. And one of them is very much just even communication between the layers. This is even reflected if you're like the validator and like the life cycle of ETH to sort of stake and unstake. So, you know, what you can kind of, what you could do sort of immediately at the point of the merge was sort of deposit ETH into the deposit contracts, moving that from the execution layer to the consensus layer. And it actually wasn't until the Chappelle hard fork that we had earlier that you could actually withdraw the ETH from the consensus layer to the execution layer. So what I was saying is that you had a way to move ETH from the execution layer to the consensus layer. And this is like some form of communication, if it, even if it's like very limited, just like moving ETH. And actually, yeah, the point of the merge, there was no way to even go back the other direction and withdraw your ETH from the, the CL to the EL. These are like these fungible acronyms we like to use because consensus layer is a mouthful as is execution layer. So that being said, you know, there's other things we could imagine trying to like sort of communicate, especially in a trustless way from one layer to another, you know, beyond just, okay, this ETH balance move from here to there. There's a lot going on because there is all of this like sort of crypto economic security at the consensus layer with all of the ETH that has been staked. There's like a whole life, like a validator life cycle. And there's like various applications that you can imagine. Some of them we'll look at in a bit that tie into understanding this information. And if there are a way to like somehow gain information about, you know, that state inside the execution state that we all know and love, you know, that would actually improve the trust assumptions of many of the applications. So the EIP sets out to do is actually, you know, essentially close the gap from not only going from sort of the CL or the EL to the CL, but then back again. And like I've been gesturing out, there's all sorts of applications that you could imagine, you know, building, building with this. And, you know, that being said, many of these, they, well, yeah, just to run through them. I mean, again, there's probably even more that you can imagine. Some big ones are like staking pools. So these like liquid staking tokens, Lido, Rocket Pool, things like this. They essentially need to know the state of the validators on the consensus layer uh, in order for them to be able to like, you know, even function, right? Like you need to understand, okay, if this validator is in this pool and it's supposed to have done this, did they? And if they didn't, you know, what does that mean? Restaking applications like Eigenlayer. So people now are thinking about, okay, if we have all this like stake locked up, well, that might be like capital efficient. So we could imagine sort of repurposing it in other applications. And again, all the same considerations apply. You know, if a validator is supposed to do this, what, you know, what do they actually do? And what does that mean for my protocol, my application? Another one is around MEV management. This one I think is maybe a bit more speculative than the others, but there are some constructions you might've heard of like Pepsi, where again, you could very much imagine wanting to know sort of the behavior of validators or like MEV builders in this case, in the system and understanding what they did and using that to actually improve the security of whatever application you're designing. And that all being said, many of these applications exist today. I, I mean, I gave you some, you know, some of these like products in the market already. And, you know, so it's not that people have not, you know, been doing this stuff at all. Um, in fact, some, a lot of motivation for this VIP is just recognizing, hey, people are going to do this. So if we can improve the security of the whole thing, like that would be great. And this is one way to do this because right now, the way all these applications work is they have some sort of trusted Oracle. You can imagine just like a multi-sig that is basically authorized to vote in like the latest consensus states. And that's essentially how all these work today with the ZIP. You could actually remove this Oracle entirely and instead have this trustless one. So that's very much the motivation for this work here. And yeah, so EIP 4788, this is again, the EIP that is 
you know, trying to execute everything I just said. So we will in some way get the beacon block root from this beacon chain, essentially the, the consensus part of the protocol that the EVM cannot currently access. We will somehow move this root into the EVM. And I'll explain a bit more what sort of like this root thing is and some of these other words in a second. But yeah, you can see here that the EIP's been open in some form for like over a year now. And yeah, this point has quite quite a long author list. So yeah, let's look at the IP a bit closer. So a big thing here is this concept of a beacon block root. And with the merge, maybe this makes a little less sense because there's just like the merged chain now. But before the merge, there was a proof of stake chain called the beacon chain. And so when we refer to accessing the consistent state, we very much want to have access to this beacon state or this, you know, this consensus state. And it turns out that there's like a number of these things we call the roots. What they refer to are, are roots of Merkle trees, which again, I'll explain more in just a second, but ultimately they're cryptographic commitments to the data they commit to. And that means you can make efficient proofs against them. And that's very handy. And, you know, as you can probably already see, that's how we start to get to this place where we can make these like trustless statements about this consensus state and then verify them inside the EVM. So we have these accumulators, these roots, and where they come from is that the way we kind of lay out our data in the consensus layer is with this schema called SSZ and it supports Merkleization just as part of it, where you can say for some given piece of data, I want to also be able to make a Merkle tree. I can take the root of this tree and that gives me a commitment to all the data. This is very handy because now you can have Merkle proofs to say, yes, if I trust the root of this thing, then in fact, I can actually say, okay, this root committed to this data at this point in time and we're good to go. So this is a schematic of kind of what I was just gesturing at. So at the very top left here, you see, you know, I said zero X def beef cafe. That's some hex encoding of this root. These roots are like 32 byte values. And again, at least cryptographic commitments to all this data. So for example, you can imagine having the root here of a beacon block. And the way this works is that ultimately the root here commits to the header of this block and turn the header commits to the body. That's where you see this body root. But it also commits to other things like the state root. So then you can see from the state root, we could have a proof down to the beacon state. The beacon state has all kinds of things. For example, the registry of validators, you can imagine making a proof to one validator in this list. And then from that one validator, you say, okay, for example, you know, I could prove against this very top level root. So at that point in time, as of the state of the chain, was this validator slashed? And here, you know, I'd like to paint this picture that, yeah, basically you could reach any consensus state from this root. And we have these fairly small proofs to do this. And yeah, we now unlock all this information. We can use harden these different applications and protocols I was talking about a second ago. So that's pretty cool. Now, that's sort of just, you know, to give you context, when we talk about getting the root in the EVM, what do we mean? And why is, how does that help us solve our problem, which is like making proofs about the consensus state. So we have a way to make proofs about them. The thing is we now have to get them like in the EVM. So that's kind of like the other half of the CIP. And to explain that, we will need a little more additional context as well. So with the way that the software is structured today, we have this thing called the engine API. It's like a very core part of the merge. You can imagine other like CL and EL software that doesn't use the engine API. They could have like more of a tight end process integration. There's also things you can imagine, but 
essentially this engine API gives you like a sort of minimum functionality. It says, you know, if you are like part of this ecosystem, then there's a way for, for example, the EL to get updates about the latest head of the chain. For example, for the CL to understand if this EL block is valid, things like this. And I have this little graphic here. So essentially there's like different APIs. Generally we see clients built like this with like different separate clients talking over the APIs and, you know, they each separately have their own like gossip network, peer-to-peer -peer network at each layer of the stack. So the reason I brought this up is because we essentially will use this engine API here to communicate this route. And at a very high level, what does this look like? Well, essentially for every block, the CL will send this parent beacon block route. And, you know, just to make this clear, the reason we use the parent is because you need this thing available to actually execute the block, which means you need it to construct the block, which means if you use the current block route, you wouldn't be able to get it to have it in the EVM. <laughs> There's a circular dependency here because you can imagine a very simple smart contract that changes execution just depending on the value of this route. And so, yeah, there, you can't get the current block route inside the current execution, but that's fine because we'll just use the parent. So the CL goes to send the parent along with an execution payload, which is like some new execution message that it wants the EL to verify. The EL puts it into the execution payload header. So this is here to support like syncing use cases. I think I'll say more in a minute about that. And... Right, so the EL then takes this root value from the CL, it writes it to the EVM state as a system transaction. So this is a new concept the CIP introduces. I'll say a bit more in a second, but essentially there's almost this new class of operation or transaction that has, I won't say special privileges, but maybe we should say that. But they have, it, it has a way to basically write this in a way that no one else can write. And that helps us you know, know that the, the whole construction is secure. So once the EL writes the route that it receives into the EVM state in this like special way, then it's just now in a smart contract and anyone can read it like any other smart contract and get the root value that they're looking for. So yeah, I talked about some of this as I was going through the steps. Why do we want to use the parent beacon blocker? So again, there's just this circular dependency. You could have like dependent execution based on the root value. So you can't actually have the root value that's going to commit to the execution if you need the root to be part of the execution. Hopefully that makes sense. And then also we would like to put the block header or sorry, put the block root into the block header. And this is to support syncing. So there's like a sort of, we'll say design decision in of this merge architecture, which is essentially saying that you actually want the EL and the CL to be able to operate independently as much as possible. And so, for example, there could be like a reorg on the CL and then suddenly there's like some new EL block over here that, you know, the local EL has never seen. It has to say, hey, execution clients, go tell me if this chain makes sense because I think I should switch over here. The EL then needs to go sync this other, this new branch of the chain and it will go do that. And yeah, you wouldn't want it to be the case where the execution layer is now syncing a branch and for every block it has to go back to the CL and say, hey, what was the root? Hey, what was the root? Hey, what was the root? Instead, they're just all sort of, you know, very neatly committed to in the header and the EL can kind of just go independently. So, yeah, let me talk a bit about the system contract idea. So this is actually pretty new. This is something that has been changed in maybe even last month. And originally this EIP was written as a pre-compile. So, you know, we have an identity pre-compile, SHA-256. There's various ones, and the idea was essentially 
have the functionality of this thing be a pre-compile and then now it would just be stateful. So that would still be like a twist on the feature set because all pre-compiles that we have otherwise are stateless in the sense that, you know, if you just put in data, you'll get back the same thing no matter what. This would actually be stateful because we'll see in a second, there's actually like somewhat sophisticated contract state that we're keeping track of for reasons I'll, get, I'll explain when we get there. But ultimately, you know, this would be a pre-compile, it would have state. And we went, you know, there was some back and forth around this design decision. You know, if you're going to get into the weeds, you can go check out the Alcor devs from maybe the last month or so where we talked about some of these things, but ultimately we've settled on essentially the system contract. So rather than this be a pre-compile, you ultimately now just do the same thing, but have it be a, a smart contract. And there's like a number of reasons to do this. One of them is just that the staple precompile is like kind of a novel notion and it's just, there's like less sort of new stuff to think about and reason about both as a protocol designer, but also as like protocol implementer, especially from a security perspective to not have this like new concept. Whereas instead just a regular, you know, vanilla smart contract is one that, you know, we as a community have a lot of experience with, and that's something we like kind of understand. Right. So that feels better. There's like another important point, which if there were a problem with this EIP, say the implementation of a pre-compile, that would ultimately be like, this is this failure, which is bad. <laughs> because you can imagine there's two clients, let's say, and they have a difference in the pre-compile. Well, they would just end up with, for example, a different state route, and then there'd be a change split and that would be a headache. This way, you know, assuming the EVM is correct, there could be a problem with the contract bytecode, and that might mean that the feature of this like beacon state route or sorry, beacon block route, you know, fails for some reason, but it wouldn't mean like a chain split for the protocol. So, you know, that's actually a pretty strong argument for this approach because it just kind of eliminates this whole class of like greater consensus failures. Yeah. Beyond what we would have otherwise. So that being said, the reason this is like a system contract and not just a, you know, actual vanilla smart contract is that we still need some way to sort of gate who can write routes to this thing. For security reasons that I'll get to in a second, you, we need to write to it a bit carefully and in a certain way. And so you would still need some way to say, okay, even if this is like a contract with DBM bytecode, that's great, but you know, we need some way to gate who can write to it. And that's where now the access control is done in the bytecode. We'll see in a second, but it's essentially from this address that Presumably no one knows and only this like system caller idea can do it because basically you just do it outside of the actual EVM execution and have these sort of like admin privileges. So this is what we mean when we say this like system contract or system caller idea. And then, like I said, you know, from there, once the thing has been written to, anyone can go and read it just in a usual way with the usual contract call and that's good. So just to dig into the details a little bit further, there's this concept of the system address that I was gesturing at a second ago. And the idea is that when you get a new block before you execute any of the transactions, you uh, as system address call into this, the smart contracts that will be deployed and you write the route from the header into the contract storage. And then now again, like I was just saying, anyone can go and call the thing. The actual interface is that you call it with the timestamp of the slot you're querying. If the contract has it, you'd get back the parent beacon block route for that slot. And now we have solved our problem. We have trusted access to the beacon state via these Merkle proofs and series of routes and things. 
and now our applications are off to the races. However, just as I've sort of explained, there might be a few more problems. For example, it's actually hard because you know, I guess, yeah, like one way to think about what I just said is that you would, for each block, you would go and write the one root and the next block would overwrite the next root, next block would overwrite the next root and so on. And so what this means is that you basically, if you want to use this thing, you have to make sure that the transaction you write to verify all these proofs and know that, you know, your claim is correct would need to essentially be included in like the same block as the state you're trying to make proofs against. That's actually going to be pretty tricky and there's just no reason to really like demand this of people. So instead we can just say, okay, well, rather than one slot sort of window, we can imagine there's maybe a day of like roots that are lying around. And so now the actual implementation is not just the one root, but it's actually structured as a ring buffer. A ring buffer is, you know, there's this graphic here from Wikipedia and basically it's just saying like you have a fixed array and the idea is you just use some modular arithmetic to like index into the array and it just loops around. And yeah, you change it. You pick the size of the buffer to have your window. For example, we'll target say a day. And what this means is rather than needing to get into the exact same block that you're trying to make a proof against, you like have some time. <laughs> You have, say, a day to say, okay, I want to make a proof about the slot that just happened. And maybe I will go off and like figure out, okay, you know, I need to reason about some protocol state now, and then I need to make the proof. And maybe this takes me five minutes and then I can actually get my transaction on chain from there. So this should be much better in terms of, of UX. Now with the ring buffer, there's like another complication because essentially we can have missed slots and the way the interface works is that you can basically query for any slot. When we say miss slot, what we mean is that essentially we expected there to be a beacon block. There was a validator who could have made a beacon block. In this case, a whole merge block, a block in the chain. But for some reason, did not make it on chain in time. Either the validator wasn't online, there was a failure in block processing and block production. Maybe there was a reorg or something. There's all sorts of things that can happen. And in that case, essentially the block does not make it into the chain. And it's missed in some sense. And this is what I mean by a missed slot. And this is a problem for the CIP because essentially what would happen in this case is that you would have, especially, you know, once this thing is deployed and say there's a whole day of roots in here, then now you get back to the same index or the same like cell, let's say, of the string buffer. And if you haven't, you know, if you for some reason missed like writing in the new root, what would happen is you would have the old root, if that makes sense, like modulo, say a day. And I tried to make a little graphic here. You can imagine we go along and fill each cell with a root. So now it has this nice purple color because there's like good data here. But then we missed a slot right there where there's like the red circle. And that's kind of indicating, okay, so sure, there was a root here, but it was actually the root from, it would have been that slot modulo the size of the ring buffer, right? So it would have been like yesterday's slot at that point in time, not today's slot that we want. And that would be bad. If you could say, hey, give me the root for this slot, and it's just like the wrong information. Like you could imagine somehow you like have a restaking protocol and you need to know, okay, if my validator was slashed at this point in time, like their stake is no longer any good in my thing. And so I need to do the accounting in the execution layer to make up for that. But if I could somehow make false proofs or proofs about, you know, the incorrect state, then suddenly my thing falls apart. So that's not any good. And the way we fixed this was essentially to make a second ring buffer with the timestamps. And so essentially you can think of it as like cache where it's saying, hey, for this timestamp, what was the roots that I had? And you actually will only return data if the timestamp matches the one you're querying. 
And then otherwise you just forget exactly what we say. I think you just return nothing. You do like a revert. So now there's no way to get, let's call it stale data out of the contract. And I lifted this pseudocode from the EIP. We'll just, I'll just call it some nice things, but essentially it's, it's saying, you know, the things I've just covered. So as you go to execute this thing, you check first, you know, who's calling this contract within the EVM. If it's the special system address, then you actually want to run the set routine. If not, you want to call the get routine. And again, the logic or the rationale is that no one should be able to fabricate a transaction from the system address. We just pick this like particular address and assuming, you know, all of our cryptography is secure. There's no way for someone really to find the private key for this address and then make a transaction as that sender. So if that's, this, if that's the case, then we can use this to actually know, are we in like the system context or not? And if we are, then we will call the set routine here, which is basically saying, okay, give me the timestamp of the block, turn it into these indices, into each of these separate ring buffers where I'm going to put the timestamp along with here, it says call data, but the understanding is that the call data contains these 32 bytes, the parent beacon block root. If you are not the system address, then you would call the get routine, where again, pretty straightforward. If we have anything other than 32 bytes, we're actually just going to revert because we demand that because we should only be getting roots into this thing, or sorry, only get timestamps into this thing. And we want the timestamps to just be the word size of the VM. That's just what will naturally come. So then given the timestamp that we're interested in the call data, we convert that into the same index we expect. We get that from the storage. Again, if they don't match, we just re revert actually, which also returns out of this code. Then if they do match, we can go ahead and just read the root in the same way and return that to the caller. So pretty lightweight. Yeah, should be pretty straightforward. So that was looking at implementation and yeah, from here, what kind of applications can we imagine? I'll sketch out a few of them. You know, hopefully if you're watching this, you have more ideas and you know, can be off to the races in terms of building all sorts of cool stuff. And yeah, like immediately we, these are like our, the ones that have been running. So like staking pools, Lido, Rocket Pool, restaking with Eigenlayer, MEV management. And so again, those are things like if you've been following Barnabas, like Pepsi idea, you can imagine rather than have a very fixed sort of PBS protocol like we do today, you could imagine the actual auction bid is like generic possibly as generic as you want. <laughs> and uh, yeah, you can imagine wanting like either validators bonded in the system, builders bonded in the system, different things like this and wanting to make claims about the consistent state to, to help make secure constructions there. And right. So, I mean, the first thing is immediately they all, all these applications and even ones we haven't thought of yet can use 4788 to trustlessly, trustlessly get access to the consensus layer. And that's really big because it instantly improves all the security of all of them, right? They no longer need these like trusted multi-sigs to do anything. They just, yeah, now have this sort of as a, like a protocol facility and that's really great. So, you know, I'll drill in a bit to some of these different applications with staking pools, right? So a very like obvious, like maybe almost too obvious one is just literally knowing, you know, if I have a validator in my staking pool that I want to manage, you know, as a system of smart contracts, are they even registered yet? What is their life cycle? Have they deposited? Are they active? Are they slashed? Are they not active? Are they, have they exited all these different, you know, attributes that a validator can have, and that's going to have implications for my staking protocol. Similarly, validated performance. So this is like a big one is saying, Hey, 
you know, I could actually prove, so we actually, you know, we record validated performance essentially in the beacon state. And by doing so, you can figure out, you know, what rewards or and or penalties they should incur. And again, should be very straightforward to see how that can be really helpful for a staking pool because you can now prove what happens and then figure out, you know, maybe there's some accounting you want to do in the execution layer for this pool. And now you can get this information directly. And yeah, there's like more qual consequences of this fact. One thing would be actually using like a running stream of this to actually rate the performance of a validator. You can imagine that's some nice little encapsulated metric, maybe to say give like node operators in Lido, like a scorecard of sorts or like a report card. You could then imagine like a more complex staking pool where you actually use performance to actually make tranches of the LST. So that's like a big thing is, you know, for decentralization reasons, we want LSTs to have like very heterogeneous validator composition. But then, you know, the more heterogeneous they are, the harder it is to have a single LST that like represents all of them. And yeah, you could start to imagine tinkering with things here around like actually making different like classes of risk based on validator performance. Yeah, there, there's like a whole fun R&D space there. Yeah, I'll just say that for now. And yeah, restaking, I mean, again, like even very simple, basic things like, you know, is the validator registered in a way that they can participate in my restaking protocol? Like the way at least like Eigenlayer and probably most or like even really all restaking constructions you can imagine, they're going to, the way that they work is basically as a validator, you can have stake at the consistency layer, but then when it comes back to the execution layer, it basically needs to flow through the restaking, you know, protocol in the execution layer. And that's actually where the accounting will happen. So if there are any slashings there, they can be accounted for. And otherwise, yeah, these restaking apps are like meaningless or rather they just, they don't have any security. So this is like a very critical part. So you can actually check, hey, you know, is this validator correctly registered to even participate in my application in the first place? Another one, yeah, is understanding like our validators slashed. So this is saying, well, yeah, with any restaking broadly, there's this mismatch almost because you have the stake at the CL and that's where independently things could happen. There could be like, this is faults or this is penalties, you know, less harshly that can happen there. And then separately you have this whole app layer where you could have like app layer slashings or app layer penalties. And like already these things are just like completely out of sync, which is actually like not great <laughs> for security of either the application or the consensus layer. But that all being said, you can imagine restaking constructions where there's a much tighter sync between these two values. And then actually what happens is like the whole thing is, is more secure simply because if I'm slashed at the CL, that's probably going to have implications for my application layer validation. If I'm slashed in my application layer app, then that's going to have implications, you know, like I should actually maybe almost be slashed as much as I am in the, or, you know, if I have some penalty from an application failure, that should probably be upstream, so to speak, into my representation as well. Yeah, there's more I can say about that, but restaking definitely will, you know, be improved or would very much need access to this type of information that the CIP provides. This one I kind of said was more speculative, but again, just like MEV management, there's a, many things we want to do around like improving the trust model of MedBoost, which is our off-chain PBS. And ultimately it just means like iterating different bits of the design towards more of what an enshrined PBS would look like. And yeah, this is more like a very high level type of thing we can imagine. But yeah, there's this notion of Pepsi, which is saying, okay, if there's like a fixed auction format with MetBoost today, what if this was actually like a programmable thing you could do? 
And then you could very much imagine wanting to have like access to this, this consensus layer stake to do different things. And yeah, from there, you know, I would rather, I'd very much like to be surprised. There's so much that I think we can imagine that, you know, is, is sort of enabled or at least hardened by like the CIP. And while it does seem like pretty small in scope, I think given, you know, the value of the information that it sort of enables it, it's, yeah, there, there's a lot that could happen. Whether that's like better stake pooling constructions, whether that's better restaking constructions or other things like this. So I think that was all I had for now. And yeah, if there's some questions, I'm happy to take some questions. Well, thank you so much, Alex, for the presentation. It was really interesting to follow the evolution of the proposal. I sure have a few questions on that. We will get there in a bit. But other than that, I love the pseudocode in EIP. I'm not sure if I have ever seen pseudocode added in any of the EIP. I've seen people adding, especially on ERC side, uh, some of the Solidity code and code proposals sometimes have Python, but it was nice to see pseudocode there. And uh, I followed the post on Pepsi. We'll be sure to have Barnaby Manoth on the show to talk more about it and about the implementation. I hope to see more implementation of this proposal in the near future. People here on the call today, if you have any question, feel free to either raise a hand or maybe put it on the chat so I can invite you. In the meantime, I would like to start with uh, the first question, as you mentioned in your talk about uh, the ACDC or ACDE meeting discussion. I'm wondering about the relationship with EIP 210. So in earlier ACDE meeting, Martin Swande mentioned about the proposal, which was originally proposed for block hash refactoring by Vitalik Buterin. And the proposal is in a stagnant. That means we never implemented that. Things have changed. Now we are in the proof of stake world. So my question to you is, do you see EIP 4788 as an extension of EIP 210? in more related word? Or uh, do you think that we have carried anything from those proposal or these proposal are independent of each other? Yeah, I would definitely say that at least like the thinking behind 210 is reflected here. So maybe I have my numbers off, but I believe that the point there was essentially to move the block hashes. So already today we have access in a very similar way. You can get access to these like cryptographic, you know, we don't call them roots, but we have like hashes of the execution block headers. Those are in the EVM. And so if you want to make proofs about the execution state, you can kind of do this in a very similar way. And the way it works today is that you, there's just this block, there's, uh, sorry, this opcode block hash that gives you access to say the last 256 of these execution hashes. And yeah, from there you can make proofs, you know, verify proofs however you want in the EVM. And I think, again, if I'm misremembering a different IP, just let me know. But I believe with 210, the idea was we would essentially refactor this so that we would move them from like this opcode format actually into the DPM state, very much how 478 is doing. And this is actually where the relation is. There is a design decision with this EIP to actually not copy the block, the block hash opcode approach and do more of this, you know, data is in the state approach with this EIP. The reason why is because we want to support stateless execution. This is a different call, but there's the whole Merkle effort and moving from a, you know, Merkle Patricia try that we have today to a Merkle try. And there's many reasons we want to do this. One of them is that it actually will support efficient proofs about the consistent state and, or sorry, the execution state. 
And this is helpful. Well, it's helpful for all sorts of reasons. You can make stateless clients and stateless clients are cool because it means there's like fewer resources required to run a full node. And that's really great because it should, again, just lower barriers to entry, which is really good in terms of running a node. And concretely, the thing that 210 and also the CIP, you know, tries to address in that way is harmonize with this fact that if we have stateless clients, it's better if we have as much or even the entire protocol sort of represented in the state. And, you know, this is kind of a long-winded way to say this, but ultimately the whole point was that with the block hash construction today, it's not just the state you need, but also there's this like other little piece of data that's like a, almost like a, a look aside buffer or something of the block hashes. It's like the, these block hashes are not committed to in the state and they're just kind of out there. And so if you actually want to like, for example, make like a stateless proof of some block, you would in the current regime need to actually include this other piece of data as well, which is, you know, it's not the end of the world, but it does mean like bigger proofs. And also just like one more thing to think about. And then that actually has, I think, pretty profound implications for implementation. You know, are there bugs in the client? Is the client secure and, and all of this? So it's far simpler just to say, hey, you know, if we have this unified approach to accessing states, that's like much preferred. And that's definitely what that EIP was trying to do. And also what this one is doing by putting the data, like the history almost we care about directly in the state. That sounds good. Perhaps this is the time that uh, we can move the proposal to 102 withdrawn when we have 4788 deployed on the mainnet. All right, moving to maybe a similar question. I'm talking about EIP 4788 version 2. Originally written as a pre-compiled, EIP 4788 is on the table for quite some time, but we saw some different discussion points on various code dev calls. We saw the PR 745, and again, this is called as version 2 for this proposal. I'm curious, what changed in EIP 4788 from version 1 to version 2, and why we brought that change? Yeah, so the main thing was moving from a precompile approach to implement the EIP to this system contract idea that I was discussing. So... Right. Like rather than have native ex like a native implementation that you would call out where there would be some state, but it would just be attached to almost this like native EVM bytecode. Well, that doesn't really make sense, but you know, almost like native bytecode, you can you can think of it as. And instead now we have just it very much looks like a regular contract with EVM bytecode that's interpreted. And yeah, there's contract storage just like any other contract could have. And the reason we went with this, I tried to call this out with this notion that there's like a big security argument, which is that basically if there were a problem with the pre-compile, say between implementation of two clients, that actually leads to a split because one execution client would think this and someone else would think this. And, you know, now there's a chain split. These are bad and should be avoided at like most cost. <laughs> and, you know, one way to do that is you can actually say, okay, rather than sort of pull in like an even bigger base of implementation that needs to be correct and vetted and all of this to know that this is not going to happen, we can actually restrict the scope by moving to a fully sort of uh, hosted implementation, let's say, uh, inside the EVM. And that's ultimately what the CIP is doing now with V2. And yeah, you know, the thing is there could still be a bug in the implementation, but what we would mean is that, okay, maybe now, the security of this Oracle is broken, like the, the, you're getting back a stale or like the just an incorrect block route, block route. 
which would also be bad, especially for all these applications I was talking about. But you would avoid this chain split because basically the you know the client would still compute a chain and the chains would all be in lockstep even if the application doesn't make any sense. So, you know, I think all in, we all thought that was like a very compelling reason to to switch to this new version. And that should be what's shipping in Deneb, Cancun. That's awesome. Security is always a very compelling reason. Talking about security consideration, I find that section as to do as of now in the EIP. I would highly appreciate, you know, adding something over there, like what are the security considerations that clients should be aware of while implementing or anything that makes uh, more relevance to implementers of this proposal. All right. My next question is about changes on ELCL clients. So this EIP involves both layer. The proposal reads as exposing beacon root inside the EVM allows for trust minimized access to the consensus layer. Yet this EIP is listed as execution layer EIP. Does it mean spec changes are only for EL and on CL client, it is either minimal or none, or is it because it is getting into system contract? Right. So there are some changes at a consensus layer to support this. They're actually quite minimal, like even smaller than on the EL side. And essentially it's just saying that when I go to produce a block, the CL will also need to send over the root, which is what the EL will put into its execution payload. And then, you know, the rest kind of follows from there. So there's essentially a small change to the engine API during block production, but that's pretty much it. So yeah, pretty lightweight and... Yeah, I think from the CL side, this the CIP has been ready to go for quite some time. And then now we're just kind of fine-tuning more of the EL stuff. That's right. My next question is about uh, the timing. The proposal was drafted in February 2022, and we have had at least two upgrades since then. Both of them were major upgrades. Why it couldn't have been considered earlier? I'm more looking into uh, the road blockers, if there were any, and not the upgrade priorities. Right. Maybe could you ask again? It's just the question is like, why did we, like, were there any blockers just shipping the sooner? Right. Yeah. I understand the two upgrades uh, which happened in between February till date are March and uh, Shapela. Uh, they both had their own priorities. If priority was not the reason, I'm just trying to understand the uh, status of EIP and why we could not have shipped it in earlier upgrade. Right. Yeah. Fair question. I mean, I think it is mostly just priority though. You know, we wouldn't like, we did pretty much everything we could to ship, you know, just the merge and not anything else. And then from there, the question was like, okay, well, there's actually this other really big piece, which is withdrawals. So then we wanted to ship that. And then, yeah, I mean, conceivably we could have included this in an earlier fork, but yeah, there wasn't enough sort of bandwidth amongst the core devs. Or, yeah, I guess just not enough pressure from, say, the community. So it wasn't, it didn't make the cut. We can only put so many things into each hard fork. But I am excited this one's going into the next one. And, yeah, it unlocks other stuff we want to do in the future as well. Thank you. I see uh, there is a question in the chat uh, by Andrew. Andrew, please go ahead with your question. Sure. Thanks, Pooja. And hey, Alex, my question is just kind of uh, clarifying around the implications for liquid staking protocols and like the removal of trust assumptions around the oracles for these protocols. I, I think really my question's more of that technically how it works from deriving like something like the validator effective balance from the consensus layer 
block root uh, that's now exposed in the EVM. I'm just wondering if that's still something that requires a trusted actor to perform or if there's a way that it can be done trustlessly by an immutable smart contract or something. Right. That's, that's a really good question. So that's certainly, again, like the, I think a very big motivation of this work is just to say, yeah, like how much can we imagine these different applications like staking pools and can we make them, you know, totally trustless. And for example, if they need to prove off the effective balance of some validator, that's great. But then, yeah, it's, you know, maybe they have trustless access to the the data, but yeah. So either way, it's a good question because actually the answer is there's still some pieces <laughs> that we may want to consider another EIP where you would actually even like fully remove any trusted bits. And the trusted bits I'm getting at is that there are some things in the beacon state where we actually may want to change the layout of different data and that actually changes the format of the proof itself. So you could imagine that basically... Yeah, uh, we don't really have time to get into it, but ultimately there's this notion of a generalized index, which says, if I have some data, there's a way to go from the roots to like exactly the data I want. And, you know, as protocol designers, we tried to not basically make these indices change, but like they can. In that case, yeah, you would imagine that you kind of need some governance process to update your application with this new information. So, you know, in the long run, maybe... You know, these indices I'm talking about will never change. So it's never an issue. Maybe there's another EIP that's like essentially just like a more abstract proof, you know, proof verification precompile. And, you know, you could essentially subsume this functionality and make the whole thing fully trustless. Yeah. So there's some, I mean, certainly some further research we could do there to probably improve this even further. But that being said, the only time these things then, you know, this data I'm talking about would change would be at like across hard forks. So, it's not something that is like even a super urgent risk, even after deploying this CIP. Thank you so much, Alex. I know it is about time. I just wanted to let you know, I see the proposal is still in the draft status. I would highly recommend it to be moved towards the review status. Uh, but before you make the pull request, it would be really nice to see test cases, reference implementation and security consideration section, which is still mentioned as to do have some words over there. I know the proposal is already on a uh, DevNet, so it would be nice to fill up and move the proposal as desired. Uh, sure. Yeah, I will. Uh, I'll, I'll keep the status in mind. And uh, any final words, if you would like to share with the community. Yeah. Otherwise, no. I mean, thank you all for having me. Hopefully this was helpful and like at least shared some of the thinking and the context that went into this. Yeah. Otherwise, definitely consider this. If you need this information in your application, please take a look. Feel free to reach out if you want. We can chat about how to integrate it into your application. And yeah, otherwise, I think that's it for now. Very well. Alex Stokes, we thank you for joining us on PPenny and talking about upcoming changes with EIP 4788. We look forward to seeing this proposal on the public testnet and finally on the mainnet with Dencon. On this note, thank you to all our YouTube viewers for watching and podcast subscriber for listening to this special episode. Should you have any question on this or any other topic, let us know at EatCatHerdes Discord. Check out the description for more info. We'll be back with another interesting talk. Until next time, keep watching, keep listening and keep sharing your love with Ethereum Cat Herders. Cheers.